Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit There are two major types of criminal investigations, namely evidence-based investigations and suspect-based investigations. Every investigation should always begin as evidence-based. This only makes sense. Evidence should lead you to a suspect, not the other way around. Proper form is to gather evidence and analyze it. See if that evidence points towards any particular potential suspect. Once the scales reach a breaking point, that is when you shift to a suspect-based investigation. During the evidence-based phase, detectives should be interviewing everyone who was closely connected with the victim or victims, and anyone who was in the proximity of the crime, and may have witnessed something. Fingerprints should be collected and analyzed, blood, hair, fibers, etc. Potential murder weapons should be collected and analyzed. And most importantly, the investigation should not shift to suspect base until after the detectives have received an autopsy report. To put it bluntly, it's very difficult to figure out who did something until you at least know what was done. Unfortunately, what we consistently see in a large majority of wrongful convictions, and this case is no exception, are the situations where police begin their investigation with a suspect and work backwards from there trying to find and force evidence to fit their predetermined theory. Within hours of the discovery of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher, Jerry Driver, Steve Jones, and James Sudbury had already pegged Damien Eccles as the killer. There's no disputing that fact. It's well documented in the police files. Some sources even claim that Jones actually named Damien within minutes of Michael Moore's body being removed from the Muddy Creek. From that point forward, efforts were made to try to find evidence of Damien's guilt. But the West Memphis Police Department never found any. They had absolutely nothing on Damien other than a theory that he was the satanic killer of three innocent eight-year-old boys. And all of this before Gary Gitchell had even received the autopsy report from Dr. Peretti. The best that investigators could do was guess at what they thought happened. And this is where, in my opinion, the West Memphis PD's investigation went terribly wrong. And this is also where myself and the so-called nons part in our methodology of investigating this case. I've learned over the last eight months that it's impossible to change the mind of someone who begins their investigation with a conclusion. Once you make your mind up that someone is guilty, then all you will ever do from that point forward is try to twist, bend, and spin every fact that comes along to fit your theory. It's actually a strong position to argue from because the opposing viewpoint is left trying to prove a negative. My process is simple. We start from scratch. We gather evidence and see where it takes us. 
This is also the process that I use to screen cases. If the police did in fact get the right person, time only helps their case. As years go by and new evidence, scientific developments, and new witnesses come forward, it should be easier to prove a case, not more difficult. But more times than not, when I begin assessing a proposed case, I go back to the beginning, consider all of the evidence that was available at the time of the investigation, as well as any new evidence and testing that was completed after the conviction, and I end up right back where the police landed years before. As I've said many times, if a wrongful conviction occurred, you should be able to quickly detect how it happened. What did the police do wrong in the early stages of the investigation? Was it tunnel vision? Assumptions? Maybe a vendetta? Was there a jailhouse snitch and no physical evidence? Were credible leads ignored in the early stages of the investigation? And most importantly, does the available evidence point away from the convicted and perhaps toward a more likely suspect? There is no case against the West Memphis Three. There never was. The bits of circumstantial evidence that does exist is unreliable, is not evidence of guilt by any stretch of the imagination, and most of it was discovered or manufactured after the West Memphis PD had already attempted to build a case and made their arrests. After a short break, I'm going to cut through all of this proverbial BS and lay out the so-called case against the West Memphis Three, one defendant at a time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Let's begin with Damien Eccles. Damien stole the show in Paradise Lost. His enigmatic personality and defiance in the face of authority made him the central character in the documentary. When the movie aired in 1996, for the first time, people from around the world took notice of what appeared to be a terrible injustice. Celebrities like Eddie Vedder, Henry Rollins, and Johnny Depp, to name a few, became part of a massive movement to free the West Memphis Three. Then, throughout the next decade, the plea for innocence began to gain some traction. Unlike 99% of those wrongfully convicted, Damien and company now had the funds to put up a fair fight. World-renowned experts were hired, and everyone wanted in on the investigation, including Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Amy Berg. As they began filming for their own documentary, West of Memphis, they took to the streets in West Memphis. The theory being that there had to be someone out there who knew what happened. Billboards were erected offering reward money for information about the case. Dozens, if not hundreds of people were interviewed. Biological evidence was tested and retested. Jury misconduct was discovered. Witnesses recanted revealing alleged police and prosecutorial misconduct all leading to the August 2011 release of the West Memphis Three through an Alford plea. And all done with Damien and his wife Lori at the forefront. But why Damien? Was it just his personality? 
While he was a very unique character, I don't think that's the reason that his likeness has led the charge for all of these years. Damien stands out because Damien was and always has been the target. Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly were collateral damage, nothing else. Driver, Jones, Sudbury, and Don Bray wanted Damien, plain and simple. Gitchell, Ridge, and Allen were looking in all the wrong places and ignoring or avoiding everyone who should have been a suspect. Those leads were ignored because they did not fit the ridiculous, uninformed theory that the boys were killed by Satanists. The lead investigators for the West Memphis PD were trying to find a monster. When Gitchell's team ran out of ideas, still working blind without even an autopsy to develop a proper theory, they jumped on board with driver Jones, Sudbury, and Bray and went after Damian Eccles. But they still had nothing, zero evidence of his involvement. So how did they create a case? The answer is Jesse Miss Kelly. Jesse was just as much a target as Damien, but for a different reason. Jesse served one purpose to Gitchell, and that was to hand the West Memphis PD a case against Damien. So what was the case against Damien Eccles before Miss Kelly's coerced false confession? He didn't have a complete recall of where he was and at what times during the night of the murders. Darlene Hollingsworth and an ever-changing number of family members and friends said that they saw him walking near the crime scene three hours after the boys went missing with Dominie Tear. Vicki Hutchison told police that Damien took her to an SBAT. They saw an orgy happening and he took her home, a statement which she later says was a complete lie. But it's possible that the detectives didn't know that in May of 1993. And that's it. That's all she wrote. That was the case against Damien Eccles leading up to his arrest. Well, oh wait, there is one more thing. He was a Wiccan or a Satanist or something that's not Baptist. And that was the case against Damien Eccles. During the past decade, an epidemic of ritual crime has swept our nation at an alarming rate. Law-abiding citizens report satanic crimes in every state, and the number of cases investigated by police continues to rise. Now, after the arrest, more evidence did come in. After Gary Gitchell announced to the press that on a scale of 1 to 10, the case against the three was an 11. The so-called softball girls told police that they overheard Damien at a softball game with some friends bragging about how he had killed the three little boys and that he already had his next victims picked out. Which sounds like pretty damning evidence, although the witnesses couldn't name the friends that he was speaking with. They don't know what was said before or after this. Nothing. They just happened to hear the person who was all over the news for being arrested for these murders confess in public. And I'm sure you've done the math. The supposed confession occurred before the arrests, while a huge reward was being offered. And crickets from the softball girls. It was only after the arrests, when it was known who the police were seeking information to build a case about, that the girls came forward. Heading into trial, this is all prosecutors John Bogleman and Brent Davis had to work with. Well, that and the advantage of months of press coverage and the 1993 satanic panic. The state had to rely on witnesses like Dale Griffiths to convince the jury that this was indeed a satanic ritual killing and that Damien Eccles was a Satanist on the hunt for a child sacrifice. The jury was convinced, and in 1994, Damien Eccles was convicted and sentenced to die by lethal injection. 
During the sentencing phase, Damien's psych records were introduced into evidence. This has given fuel to the non-argument for the last 24 years. The records paint a picture of a very disturbed young man. Damien suffered from depression and most certainly acted out violently and strangely at times. The records, known as Exhibit 500, do not depict what most people would consider a good guy. At worst, the documents indicate a sociopath with violent tendencies. But what they do not indicate is that Damien Eccles was anywhere near Robin Hood Woods on May 5, 1993. Exhibit 500 is smoke and mirrors, and it's no more evidence of guilt than any violent offender living in the neighborhood. Summarily, there was no case, none, against Damien Eccles. The only shred of evidence even suggesting that Damien was near the crime scene was the coerced false confession of Jesse Miss Kelly. The case against Miss Kelly was even thinner than the case against Eccles. Just like Damien, there were no fingerprints, hairs, DNA, footprints, or any other physical evidence linking Jesse to the crime scene. There wasn't even a Narlene Hollingsworth claiming to have seen him there. Nothing. Jesse was not even a suspect when he was brought in for questioning on June 3, 1993. His purpose was clear. Give the West Memphis PD information on Damien. The only reason that he was involved at all was because Vicki Hutchison got him involved. In what I believe was a simple attempt at cashing in on the reward money, Vicki offered police to help get a confession out of Damien. She knew Jesse, and Jesse knew Damien, period. That's how he got involved. Vicki just needed him to introduce her to Damien. Once Jesse began answering questions, it appeared that Ridge and Gitchell saw an opportunity. Even before the tapes were turned on, it became very apparent that Jesse would change his stories and agree with any things the detectives suggested to him. Finally, they could manufacture a witness against their one and only target. Jesse was resistant for hours. He was following the detectives' leads, but wouldn't go so far as to say he was actually at the crime scene, even after being shown a photo of Chris Byer's slain body on an autopsy table. In order to loosen him up, Bill Durham gave Jesse a polygraph examination, which he passed a fact that Jesse wouldn't learn until months later when expert Warren Holmes analyzed his charts. Durham told Ridge and Gitchell that Jesse had, quote, lied his ass off. Then the two detectives used this as ammunition to convince Jesse to confess. Since we've already spent several hours on the confessions, I'll leave it at this. Even when trying to please the officers, Jesse never once demonstrated any actual knowledge of how or where the murders occurred. The confession was, in fact, false, inaccurate, and the product of what I believe to be police corruption and coercion. And that was the entirety of the evidence against Jesse leading to his arrest. His own words. Or Ridge and Gitchell's words, to be more accurate. The case for Jesse's innocence far outweighs the case for his guilt. At trial, over a dozen witnesses testified to having been in Jesse's presence at the Highland Trailer Park between 6.30 and 7 p.m. on the night of the murders. One right after another, they marched onto the stand and told a seamless, consistent, accurate story about the night that Stephanie Dollar's son was slapped, and Jesse spoke with Officer Dollahite. But none of this gave the prosecutors pause. They couldn't. See, they needed Jesse to get convicted because they needed to leverage him into testifying against Damien. Coincidentally and collaterally, 
Jason Baldwin. A few weeks ago, we spent an episode breaking down the case against Jason Baldwin. As you heard, there wasn't much to work with. No statements or interviews to dissect. Even the jury listed the top spot evidence of Jason's guilt simply being that he was Damien Eccles' best friend. Now, before Miss Kelly's false confession and the subsequent arrests, there was precisely zero case against Jason. Nothing at all. He was arrested and charged solely on the words of Jesse Miss Kelly and his association with Damien Eccles. However, at trial, if you really look at the evidence, the case against Jason was actually stronger than the case against Damien or Jesse. There was a laundry list of circumstantial evidence against Damien, and he was certainly the focal point. But when you cut through all the satanic orgy talk and overheard conversations at a softball game, there was no evidence against Damien. The trial was weeks of smokescreen by the prosecution. They convinced the jury that Damien was a weird guy, a heathen, violent, and even homicidal. All the while, the jury never seemed to have taken note of the fact that none of that, none of it, has anything to do with guilt in this case. There were footprints at the scene, not his. There was a muddy palm or thumbprint, not his. There were hairs, not his. Nothing. Even Miss Kelly's confession wasn't allowed in, although we later learned that it was in fact a contributing factor in the jury's decision. Damien was convicted because, as John Fogelman put in his closing argument, look into his eyes, there's no soul in there. Jason, on the other hand, faced actual physical evidence against him, or so the jury would be led to believe. The lake knife played a huge role in Baldwin's conviction, and Damien's for that matter. Despite the fact that Gary Gitchell knew that the knife was in the lake, exactly where it was, and exactly how long it had been there before the murders, Fogelman was still able to convince the jurors that the knife was the likely murder weapon and that Jason had thrown it in the lake to conceal it. Baldwin also faced the Michael Carson testimony claiming that Jason had confessed directly to him in jail, and the jury bought it. Of course, they weren't permitted to hear the testimony of the man who would have explained exactly where Michael Carson's story came from. Judge Burnett put a stop to that. In fact, Burnett ran interference for the prosecution throughout the duration of both trials, handcuffing the defense and allowing the jury to be led down the satanic panic rabbit hole by experts like Dale Griffiths, while Pulitzer Prize-winning experts like Offshay weren't permitted to give their opinions or conclusions. Jason, of course, was also confronted with the fiber evidence. The fibers that absolutely 100% proven fact did not come from his home. And that's really all there is. When you cut through all the BS, you find that there was just no case against Damien, Jason, or Jesse. For 25 years, supporters have been fighting online with people trying to prove what didn't happen. But when you look at the case in the proper way, letting the evidence lead you, no one would ever even knock on the door of Damien Eccles. Because neither he, Jason, or Jesse were anywhere near the Robin Hood woods on May 5th, 1993. So where does that leave us now? This process has taken longer than I ever thought it would. In February of this year, I began tracking the investigation that went in the wrong direction. So let's backtrack a little bit. To the closing statements from episode 511 on January 28th of this year. 
the place that we're going to next, the original West Memphis Police Department's investigation, is not the direction that I would have gone. So here it is. This is the summary of my profile of our unsub. The murders were committed by a lone offender. The unsub is mature, likely at least 30 years old. He has a known personal relationship to at least one of the victims and is seen as an authority figure to one or all three. He himself was likely abused as a child. He has a psychopathic personality. Those at arm's length believe him to be kind and charming, while those close to him fear his violent temper. He would be known by those close to him for his violent reactions to anything that upset his own comfort. He would have a history of violence both before and after the murders, and the majority of his violence would be aimed at those weaker than him, namely women and children. Our unsub is a bully. He would never pick a fight against anyone bigger or stronger than himself. He wouldn't even know how to defend himself against such an adversary, and his ego couldn't handle it. He's a narcissist, which would present to most as cockiness. He has never believed that he could be caught, and would laugh in the face of anyone who says otherwise. He lived in the neighborhood, which is where he entered and exited the crime scene. He had access to an empty house that evening. He was able to return home without anyone around to change clothes. He's either single, or his family wasn't home when he returned. He doesn't live in an apartment. He lives in a house. He wouldn't have returned to a place where several other residents could have witnessed coming in with muddy clothes. He was one of the searchers. He would have used the people in the search effort for his alibi. Our unsub is intelligent, at least in a street smart sense, and he's resourceful. He finds it easy to manipulate most people, but he would completely avoid anyone who he's not able to manipulate. His narcissistic ego could never handle anyone getting the better of him, either physically or mentally. He is criminally experienced. He knows how to avoid being caught by the police. He has some history of practicing focus under pressure, possibly military or law enforcement, or possibly even a behavior he learned just by surviving an abusive childhood. He's always the calm one in the room when everyone else is panicking. He would have participated in the search, possibly even attempting to get someone to help him, quote, find the bodies. But once the bodies were found, he would have been a ghost. He would have avoided the police at all costs and possibly even left the area to avoid the perception of being uncooperative. He would not want to have to decline interviewing with the police or giving DNA samples, so he would just not be there. And lastly, our unsub likely has some experience packaging meat either as a hunter or as a butcher. This is where we're going to hit pause on our investigation and make the shift back into storytelling. Starting next week, we will begin our trek down the path that the West Memphis Police Department took back in 1993, the investigation that led to three of the most controversial convictions in American history. This is the story that most of you are familiar with. The convictions of the West Memphis Three. (laughs) 
Never in my wildest dreams did I think that it would take 22 main episodes and 22 follow-ups to get through the disaster of this investigation. Nonetheless, we did it. 40 hours of podcast later, I have firmly reached my conclusion. We've spent five and a half months looking into every detail of the case against the three. And as you've just heard, there is no case. There never was. Back in 1993, the West Memphis PD began their investigation with a conclusion already in mind. From that point forward, a phenomenon known as cognitive dissonance set in. And I believe that this methodology is what has led to 25 years of debate on the case. The Encyclopedia Britannica defines cognitive dissonance as follows. The mental conflict that occurs when beliefs or assumptions are contradicted by new information. The unease or tension that the conflict arouses in people is relieved by one of several defense maneuvers. They reject, explain away, or avoid the new information, persuade themselves that no conflict really exists, reconcile the differences, or resort to any other defense means of preserving stability or order in their conceptions of the world and of themselves. The reason that I spent so long investigating the investigation is because I couldn't believe that this case was as simple as it seemed on the surface. Too many people are passionate, emotional, and sometimes downright nasty in defending the convictions of the three. There must be something there that I was missing. But throughout this process, I've witnessed cognitive dissonance firsthand on many occasions. Let me give you a few examples. Thirteen people witnessed Jesse Miss Kelly at the trailer park on the night of the murders. Well, they all must be lying, but only because they think they're doing the right thing. Every single fact revealed during Jesse Miss Kelly's confession can be sourced back to the detectives conducting the interrogation. The response? Clemente said that we don't know what was said prior to the tape being turned on. Except, we do. We have the notes, and Ridge and Gitchell both testified that Jesse didn't give any details prior to the recorded interview. We have a listener that is so hung up on the lake knife that they purchased the exact make and model to study as evidence. Even though one of the divers admitted that Gitchell told him exactly what knife they were looking for and where to find it before they ever entered the water. During the Bible confession, Jesse explains that the murders and body concealment occurred out in the main bayou, in the open, 15 feet away from the pipe bridge and water that was over his head. The response to that? He also said 15 yards from the pipe, which isn't far from the actual crime scene, and he was drunk and high, so he's probably mixed up. We all heard the red fibers touted as evidence of guilt right here on this show, in 2018, even though three scientists from three different well-respected labs have conclusively proven that the fibers were in fact not similar to the clothing from Baldwin's home, a fact that has never been disputed by the prosecution and yet still remains a talking point for guilt. Affidavits have been written, including one from one of the victim's brothers, that the area where the bodies were found, known as Turtle Hill, was full of turtles. And yet we've heard the argument that there were no turtles in the area. Dr. Warner Spitz concludes that the majority of injuries were from animal predation post-mortem. Well, he was paid by the defense, so that doesn't matter. The list goes on and on. Cognitive dissonance. Reject, explain away, or avoid the new information, persuade themselves that no conflict really exists. 
At this point, it's time for me to bid a fond farewell to those of you who still believe in the guilt of the so-called West Memphis Three. I mean you no disrespect, nor do I have any ill will. But at the conclusion of this process, it is abundantly clear that you and I will never agree. I came into this investigation without bias and with an open mind. I've come to the conclusion that logic points to, and you have and will continue to argue for your foregone conclusion. It's very clear that I am not your guy, and this is not your podcast. Happy trails, my friends. And now for the rest of you. It's time to get back to doing what we do. Finding real justice for the victims. The forgotten West Memphis Three. Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. Over the next few months, we'll be gathering new evidence, speaking to new witnesses, and working our way closer to the truth. Damien, Jason, and Jesse did not murder these three little boys. But someone did. And they're still out there. And it's time that we get down to the business of trying to find them. Next week, there will be no new episode. Mike and I are taking a break to reset for the beginning of Season 6. Then on Sunday, July 29th, Episode 601 will go live as we begin our investigation into the murder of Jaime Melgar in two weeks on Truth and Justice. Hello, this is a free call from Sandra Melgar. An offender at Hobby Unit. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. And we were about to maybe just leave because we weren't sure what was going on, but my dad said, I'm just going to go ahead and go inside. As we're walking in, you can just already feel that there's something eerie, you know? There's something... Something's not right here. Not too long after that, we start hearing help. And then we kind of just stand there, wait, what, what, what was said? You know, we weren't sure what was being said. And then finally, you can just, you can hear help, help, help. Your mom was in the closet for how long? 15 hours. Sandy's in there, he's tied up. It's taking a while, so I got out and was going to get dressed. That's all I remember until I woke up. They weren't able to loosen it up. They weren't able to get her out. So they, my mom had to go out and look for scissors. And then that's when, at that moment, everyone went looking for my uncle. Some relatives coming over to celebrate their 32nd wedding anniversary. This is just two days before Christmas. These relatives discover Jaime Melgar stabbed to death in a closet. Sandra tied up in a separate closet. His ankles all were, you know, they were all tied up with a, what looked like a telephone, like the, the gray telephone cables. We realized that he said there was a family emergency, so we called him. He let me know that my dad had been killed. And he wasn't sure how. I think it was just excuses until they could go to the DA with charges for my mom. Where's the beef? Where's the crime? Uh, I guess more importantly, where's the investigation? Jehovah's Witness, 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 Jeh
Jehovah's Witnesses don't allow you to divorce unless someone's cheating. It's very clear that Jamie's not that guy. If I get divorced, I get ostracized, and I can't talk with my friends. But if I kill him and nobody finds out, I'm not ostracized. Yes, Bill. Well, the prosecutor arguing very strongly that Sandra Melgar did murder her husband. The defense saying there was shoddy detective work and the evidence just does not add up. Now it's up to the jury. Sandra Melgar's fate lies in their hands. Let's just get this over with. This is crazy. Every, you know, a jury is going to see this for what it is. It's just they're going to see the facts of the case and we're going to get to move on with our, with our lives as best as we can. We, the jury, find the defendant, Sandra Jean Melgar, guilty of murder as charged in the indictment. Season 6 of Truth and Justice begins on July 29th with episode number 601. Join in on the investigation into the murder of Jaime Melgar. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com designed and created our Season 5 logo. A special thank you to Katie Ross of CreativeInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. 
And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.